0: Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host... Travis McQueen.
1: Hyped up. We got a lot of questions, some great questions. So we're going to have some great Q&As coming up in this next couple weeks. Um, Some more anonymous today. Nope. I assume. Oh, we got some names? Nope, we got them. Let's go. So, we're going to start off right here. We got one coming from K- Carmen Spitzer. It says, thoughts on very high protein diets for certain kinds of people, meaning three plus grams of, three gram plus, dude, how it? Yeah. Three G plus kilogram athletes, bodybuilders, chronic illness, et cetera.
0: Three plus grams per three kilogram. Gra- three G plus. Yeah. yeah. Three grams or more per kilogram per day because it's probably slash kilogram yeah yeah um and it was for what kind of people
1: for certain kind of people uh athletes bodybuilders chronic illness etc um
0: thoughts on very high protein diets for certain kind of people love them uh three plus grams per kilogram i think is actually around 1.5 grams per gram so let me do some quick math here for myself nine times three. Yeah. That's like just over, I think that's like literally exactly 1.5 grams almost 1.5 grams is a little bit more. So yeah, I think that's great. That's like between 1.25 to 1.5 grams per, um, per pound of body weight, which is great. I don't think it's reserved to only those people either. I think it can be helpful for those people. Um, I think it's more reserved to specific scenarios. And those scenarios are typically going to be serious cases of muscle atrophy, which is very rare. I'm not talking about being in a deficit, although that is one of the cases where I would recommend this. But like, realistically, if you're in a deficit and you're strength training three plus times a week, so if you're doing at least half, if not a little bit more, which is really easy to do, the amount of volume than you normally do inside the gym for training, and you're having at least your body weight and protein in, in grams, so at least 2.2 grams per kilogram uh, per day, you're going to maintain your muscle. It's not like difficult. Uh, people overestimate how much muscle you lose in a deficit, and it's actually very rare. Mm. Um, now, if you're bedridden, you can't strength train, and it's hard to eat. So, there's certain illnesses or, or injuries or things that would cause you to be bedridden. That's when muscle atrophy actually really starts to kick in. Um, obviously, there's age-related muscle atrophy as well when you get too old. But um, in those scenarios, I think going that high in protein is great because you're just kind of doubling down and it's, it's an insurance policy. You know what I mean? You're just making sure you have more than enough to maintain. Uh, during a deficit, you could do three grams per kilogram for sure as well. Um, I typically do if I'm in a deficit because hunger goes up. So if hunger's up, then it's obviously going to help to have extra protein because extra protein is going to lead to better satiety. Satiety is going to help you adhere to the diet. Um, there's also a little bit of research that shows it might have a thermic effect that leads to a little bit more calorie expenditure. So there's research of protein overfeeding where people overeat in protein and because of that, they actually lose body fat because they're eating so much protein. Their metabolism has to burn more calories because you're not going to store it as fat. You damn, you, I'm not what allowed. Amount of, what amount of protein is that? Uh, About this much. They did studies with like two grams per pound even, which is more than that. That's like almost four grams, 4.4 grams per kilogram, which is a shit ton. Um, But the point is, is going above what the standard says you should have might lead to extra calories burned per day. That might lead to fat loss. These are all done at maintenance or above. So we have to consider that it might downregulate if you're in a deficit. However, we know that you're not gonna store it as fat. And technically, I'm not allowed to say you can't store Protein is fat because calories, is calorie and there's no, you know. You can't prove it, though. It's really a hard one because people are like, well, that defeats the purpose of the thermodynamics, so you're going against science. And it's like, I understand that, but science has also shown people eat three grams per pound of fucking body weight per day and it not stores fat. So what the, what's going on here? You know what I mean? Like it's just – It's just damn near impossible to store. Kind of contradicting. Yeah. Your body's going to use it. It, Protein is just an outlier of thermodynamics to an extent. Um, It contributes to it, but it's definitely an outlier. Now, there's also a reason that you wouldn't want that much because if you're increasing protein that much and not increasing your carbs – You might be hurting yourself because you need carbs to perform to help stress, help recovery, help muscle glycogen, um, amongst other things like fiber and liver glycogen and things like that for your health. So in many ways, I don't think it's smart to increase your protein too high if you're sacrificing carbs for it. Now, if you're eating a good amount of carbs and you're having a decent amount of fat and you still want a little extra protein because you're hungry or because you just enjoy bigger sizes of portions, go for it. That's yeah. not a problem at all. It's, it's not the end of the world. Um, I don't think protein's a magical anything. It's not going to, like, fix these situations, but there's definitely situations where it might be smart to do so, especially if muscle atrophy is an issue from illness uh, or aging or injury. Um, if you're in a deficit and you need to make sure that you can adhere to diet because you're hungry all the time, it's going to help. Um, that'd be a big one. Those are the two main reasons, honestly. Yeah. Outside of that, there's not really any main reason. It's, it, studies show, like, above a gram per pound – you're not gonna really gain any more muscle from eating more protein. So, gotcha. All right, cool. Uh,
1: let's go to Carrie Hines. This is a long one. Says my Aura Ring consistently shows my heart rate goes up when I sleep the first couple hours, and I suggest it could be that I'm eating before bed and forcing my digestion to get get to work instead of resting when I snooze. The question I have is, should I actually be worried about this from the, a recovery standpoint? I'm getting seven, uh, set at least seven hours of, of actual sleep time, and my other aura ring sleep measures are great. Uh, except it thinks I fall asleep too fast. I say it's just jealous of my sleep-on-command sleep skills. <laughs> Do you have any tips or thoughts on resting heart rate stabilization during sleep? My pattern is generally downhill, not the hammock they say that is
0: ideal. Uh, first, no, I don't, I don't have any advice for the heart rate thing. I'm not a sleep expert. Um, I also would probably agree with you. It's probably from the food and potentially the blood sugar increase when you consume food, depending on what you're eating at that time. Um, but here's the thing. This is where I, I think there's a problem with people, uh, magnifying symptoms, even if they're not causing any problems, right? So if, Somebody is... Don't think too much into it. Exactly. I mean, somebody's like, oh, well, shit. Like, my heart rate's going up right before I sleep. But I still sleep seven hours, get great sleep, and have no issue with recovery. I'm training hard. Okay. Ignore it. Like, why Why look into it? You know what I mean? Sometimes people, they know... That because that is abnormal, based on what you would read, like, you probably wouldn't think you want your heart rate going up right before sleep. But if it's not causing any problems, don't read into the issue. Now, if you wrote this and you followed that your heart was up with, it takes me forever to fall asleep and I barely get five or six hours, then I'd be like, yeah, you're probably eating too close to bed. we got to focus on some things to make sure that you don't. Because typically you should give yourself a few hours before you fall asleep after eating. I don't always do that, but that's technically what you should do. Um, However, if you don't have any problems with sleeping, I don't think it's an issue. Now... um, the O-ring is definitely not jealous of your being able to sleep on command. That's called latency, and your latency is a little too <laughs> quick. Uh, I had this problem too, and I was like, oh, damn, hell yeah, it only takes me five minutes to fall asleep. And then I started reading into latency, and it's like, if you fall asleep in less than 15 minutes, then your body is exhausted. So um, this would make sense too. In my opinion, you might just be one of those stubborn people like myself who can mentally deal with being on the higher end of stress levels or over training until you burn out yeah. and then it's a bad thing so my recommendation would be to try to recover more and maybe do a little less for a while because that's exactly what they're tracking with latency if you fall asleep too quick it means that your body is in desperate need of sleep if your body's in desperate need of sleep then you have to be under recovering in one way or another because it needs fucking sleep and fall asleep right away it should take you 15 to 25 minutes to fall asleep and that's saying like you need sleep Because you need sleep, not because you're desperate for sleep and you're fucking overtrained, right, or overworked or whatever it may be. Um, And that would also make sense because if you are eating too close to bed and your heart rate is elevated before bed but you still pass out easily, I mean – the only way that would happen is if your body's exhausted. Yeah. So not really able to answer your exact question, but I would give you the advice of actually paying attention to the latency and the data and, and trying to manage training, recovery, stress management, something in order to get um, better recovered. Yeah. Because-
1: I, I, w- I want you to define the word technically. You say technically, you're not supposed to eat two or three hours before bed. Why?
0: Why? What? What is Technically. So there is some research in, like, the chrononutrition world that shows if you eat too close to bed, you could be playing with your body clock. So the body has certain hours of the day, according to sunlight, right, that it wants to be asleep, wants to be awake, wants cortisol to be high so it wakes you up, keeps you um, – keeps you uh alert and then it in the the cortisol curve like she kind of talked about the hammock right so it comes up and then you have that cortisol curve that keeps you up during the day and then it kind of tapers off during the evening into the night so that as your cortisol goes down melatonin goes up helps you fall asleep you stay asleep cortisol kicks you up you wake up have energy so on and so forth if you are a shift worker, you're going to fuck with that. If you eat at crazy weird hours, you're going to fuck with that because your body clock and your circadian rhythm are primarily based on your sleep patterns and your eating patterns. So I say that technically because you you technically should be eating – Th- I think they say two to four hours prior to bed in order for your food to be fully digested before you fall asleep. If you do that, then your blood sugar is not elevated when you go to bed. Um, your your body's not trying to send attention, blood flow, all those things to the gut to try to digest and finish digesting things. And when you digest food or after you get done eating, it's easier for your body to digest if you're standing up, moving, sitting, walking rather than Eating and then laying down super quickly. It's not as easy for your body to digest. Yep. So I say technically because in order to optimize both digestion and therefore your body clock, you probably shouldn't eat too close to bed. Some yep. people, it just doesn't bug them that much. It doesn't bug me a lot. Um, but I also have a similar issue. I have a quick latency, which means my body is probably more tired than I like to believe it is. And, yeah. You know. You track your latency on your order, not anymore, but, yeah. yeah, I did for a while, and it was pretty bad. But I, I wore the o Ring just to figure out what was going on, and I fixed the issues, and then I stopped wearing it. Yeah. Cool. Good answer. So let's uh, go to
1: Sarah Crowhurst. It says, How do you know whether it's macro or training changes you need to make when you feel like you are spinning your wheels? And are there any common tweaks you tend to make to someone's macro split who has
0: hypothyroidism? First question, I would say if it's a body composition goal, so if you're after fat loss, um, actually it kind of depends though because body composition would be muscle growth too. If it's a fat loss goal, 80% of the time it is your nutrition. That's just a fact. So 80% of the time it's a macro adjustment. There's 20% of the time where your training is just bad and we need to change it. So there's times where training, like if you're following – If you're not following a program and you're just kind of winging it in the gym or you're not doing anything scientific, then yeah, we got to change your training because that's going to have a big effect. But nutrition has such a larger effect on being able to get your body to lose fat. Like, yes, you have to burn calories in the gym, but the majority of the calories burned are through other means. Um, Exercise, uh, thermogenesis, so eat, exercise activated, thermogenesis, that is like the smallest portion of your basal metabolic rate, whereas NEAT non-exercise activity thermogenesis, RMR, your resting metabolic rate, um, the thermic effect of food, all those kind of things, those play a larger role. So your diet's going to help those things and help you lose fat way more than training. So training really just needs to be adjusted if you're not training intelligently enough to build strength during the fat loss phase or maintain your muscle, really. Um, and there are plenty of times where I've seen people and I'm like, hey, we got to change training because it's just just bad. It's just yeah. not good training. We need to make it." You follow an intelligent program and that's going to lead to better results. 80% of the time, it's your macros, it's nutrition. Now, if muscle growth is your goal, I wouldn't say it's 80, maybe 50-50, but like there's a lot of times where people need to eat more food for sure. But there's also a lot of times people just aren't pushing it hard enough in the gym. They're not doing enough volume. They're not lifting enough weight. So for muscle growth or strength, more often than not, it's actually training that needs to be adjusted. So if somebody... If I take somebody on to for a muscle building phase, I'm going to I have a direct path for their nutrition. It's actually really easy. Find their maintenance calories, make sure that their carbs, fats, and proteins are in the right ratios, and then increase their calories via carbs into like a 5 to 10% surplus. Very small surplus, but enough to like slowly gain weight. Then it's all about optimizing your really your stress management and your training. I want you to train really hard, I want you to have enough volume, I need to see you progressing in the gym, and you got to recover from it. But your nutrition on a muscle growth phase, doesn't change that often because you go into surplus and then you just kind of coast and you're just trying to find progression in the gym. So if it's muscle growth, I would say training more often than not. If it's fat loss, nutrition more often than not. Now, with hypothyroidism, it doesn't change anything in this scenario. There's certain situations where um, different Carb and fat ratios work better for people who have hypothyroidism. Um, there's times where people who have hypothyroidism also have Hashimoto's. They're very tied together, yeah. and if they have Hashimoto's, they might have a intolerance to a specific food, so we might have to eliminate some foods in their diet. Um, but when we think about the principles of adjusting macros versus training, nothing changes. Exact same. The difference with somebody who has hypothyroidism is their thyroid's a little bit slow, therefore their metabolism's a little bit slow, so their deficit might be a little bit more aggressive or bigger, right? So it's not changing how I adjust macros or when I adjust macros. It's just adjusting from a different point because their diet might start in a lower place than the person who has a perfectly healthy thyroid. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it really depends. Totally.
1: All right, cool. We're going to do one last one here. It's from Lori Juris. It says, hi, Cody. First of all, you are absolutely incredible. Don't blow his head up.
0: Let's go. I
1: just listened to the latest podcast without Alan. <laughs> 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 Finally had a reason to use Let's it. Let's go. Since so I just listened to the latest podcast with Alan Aragon. My question, can you cover what would you do for people with over a hundred pounds to lose? What, uh, most of your content falls under the 20 to 40 pound range. Are there any differences to how you would approach these specific cases? And any studies to back, that back up if we should give a quote-unquote different nutrition
0: advice for these clients? Yes and no. So first and foremost, thank you. <laughs> Second of all, the I would say the exact same principles apply to somebody who has 100 pounds to lose as to somebody who has 40 pounds to lose. Because Calorie deficit is a calorie deficit. So for the person who has 40 pounds to lose, my goal is to figure out where their maintenance calories are, create a macronutrient balance that suits their lifestyle and their training and their activity and their preferences, then create a small deficit and we take a slow sustainable approach of losing 0.5 to 1% body weight every single week um, and we carry that on for 3, 6, 9, 12 months, however long it takes and we just sprinkle in diet breaks along the way. And yes, you can absolutely diet for a full year straight if you do it intelligently and you do it while making sure you're getting enough micro. Nutrients and you're getting your diet breaks in to avoid binging or issues like that. Um, Nothing changes with the person who's 100 pounds. The fat loss process would be exactly the same. The only difference in this is that A, the timeline might be longer. It obviously takes longer to lose 100 pounds than it does to lose 40 pounds. At the same time, you're gonna lose more weight per week at 100 pounds than you would lose at 40 pounds of weight to totally. lose, right? Because 0.5 to 1% of body weight, if you have 100 pounds to lose, it's gonna be totally different. If you're 300 pounds and you have 100 pounds to lose, that's 1.5 to 3 pounds per week. If you're 200 pounds and you have 40 pounds to lose, that's f- significantly less. What is that? That's point uh, five no one to two pounds per week my bad um and only for 40 pounds right and then when you go from 200 to 90 now it's 0.8 to 1.9 like it's it lowers per week as your weight lowers um so very very similar just a longer timeline because you have more weight to lose plain and simple now the big difference here is that people forget that we have to look at what got you there so the underlying Exactly. So I've had plenty of people I've helped lose 40 pounds who came to me that were like, I train all the time. I'm strong. I love the gym. I've tracked macros before. I know what I'm doing. I just haven't paid attention to it. I like drink beer. I'm in a bad place. Got to lose 40 pounds. Cool. Easy. You know what macros are. I'm going to program your macros. We're going to periodize it. We're like, you know this stuff. It's just having accountability. Somebody who has 100 pounds to lose is probably not lifting heavy weights really strong and knows how to use macros. There's some serious something going on. Yeah. If they do. Exactly. So in that case, it's a, it's a different starting point to get them up to speed from an education perspective totally. to be able to go through that fat loss process. So with this individual, maybe we're going, okay, what, is, what are like the big things that you tend to um, binge on or crave or, or fall off the wagon for? And maybe it's alcohol, but maybe it's, Fast food, maybe it's pizza, maybe it's ice cream, maybe it's whatever. Regardless, there's something that's a habit that has nothing to do with macros, it's everything to do with the mindset and discipline aspect, so we're gonna build that first. So for somebody who has 100 pounds to lose, our goal is to get to that same place that the person with 40 pounds to lose is gonna start from, however, at first, and we could still lose that 0.5 to 1% body weight doing this, at first it's like, hey, you're gonna take a 20 to 30 minute walk every day and I want you to just focus on eating protein Three times a day. Here's your protein sources. I don't care what else you eat. You want to have fast food? Cool. You want to have ice cream? Whatever. But eat these. Do the activities. Studies show that you will eat less of those foods as a byproduct of trying to eat more protein. One, because you can't go to McDonald's and get a whole food protein source. You can't. It's going it's to be deep fried. It's going to be fake chicken pushed out of a pink goop machine. If you've ever seen that documentary, it's disgusting. Um, <laughs> you could go to Chick-fil-A. Right? And Close. Chick-fil-A has grilled chicken nuggets. So, yeah, it's still fast food, but you're making a better choice. It's not pink. No, it's, it's real. But you also save 400, 500 calories by ch- eating grilled chicken strips and French fries and a Coke at uh, – Chick-fil-A, then McDonald's. And then I convince you to have a Diet Coke instead of a regular Coke. Now we're mm-hmm. saving 750 calories. Yeah. Right, So you're losing weight just by making simple changes like that and walking every day. So we do these little things until you get to a point where you plateau. Because at a certain point, you can't keep doing that and losing weight. Um, at a certain point, we have to go, okay, let's actually track your diet and see where you're at. You want to keep eating those foods? That's fine. We can, we can fit them in. But we have to have numbers to prove that we're going to lose weight. So – for somebody who has to lose 100 pounds, the weight loss science, the weight loss process, nothing changes. It's just uh, the the starting place changes and therefore we need to make different initial habits and actions in order to get them to the right place to lose from there. Totally. If that makes sense. Yeah. Any so, studies? Um, not that I can name off the top of my head. I know there was like there's uh there's a study called the Biggest Loser Study and then there's a follow-up of the biggest loser study. I don't know if they track calories or not, or they just restricted. The problem is is there's not a lot of research on what I'm talking about because it's hard to study. They need numbers to study. You need yep. to have like hard evidence. And it's very rare to have somebody go through a year long weight loss study. Yeah. So usually A study either has to completely restrict the type of food like carbohydrates because it's a keto study or it has to have numbers with calories and they have to provide the meals because they need to be able to see how much is this person taking in so that we can prove XYZ happens or it doesn't happen. Like this is our hypothesis, right? So it's very hard. But um, if you look up like behavior change research, stuff like that, you'll see like the psychological aspects I'm talking about could be implemented with something completely different than food too. But it's nonetheless – it's those psychological aspects and things that we're working on until we get to a better place. Totally. But this ju- it's just experience from doing yeah. this for so long, you know? Yep. So there's some things that you can't always back <laughs> up with a study. Don't worry. Just, just experience. Yeah. All right, cool. Those are some good, good questions. Great questions, I should say. Yeah. And I finally got to use the, the drum button. Yeah. I can't believe it was 700 episodes in and we finally get to use it. <laughs> Not that we had this thing for 700 episodes, but... Yeah. I've been waiting for that. Um, all right, guys. If you like that episode, do us a huge favor. Leave us a five-star rating and review on Spotify and iTunes. Take a screenshot of the show, post it on your Instagram story, and tag myself at Cody McBroom. I want to thank you for listening and share it on my story as well. Um, and last but not least, go check out firstform.com slash Method if you want to check out our sponsor and get some of the best products in the supplement game with the best customer service you will ever experience, and that is a guarantee. We'll catch you guys next time.